is hell. It's been hell for centuries, millennia. I'm standing on the rubble of a ruined yet sacred site. Here lies the destroyed grave of one of the greatest Muslim fighters the world has ever known. Hawla bint al-Aswar. It doesn't surprise me that the soldiers of ISIL try to destroy this grave. Hawla's grave was a reminder of her formidable power. The formidable power of all women. Her strength gives us all strength. So, destroy the grave, destroy the story, right? Wrong. Sit yourself down and get as cozy as possible, for I am about to tell you an incredible story about this great woman. We have to go back, way back into time, to 7th century Arabia, present-day Saudi Arabia. free him. Poetry has inspired me to action many times before, but tonight, I need these verses now more than ever. I will find him, and I will free him, and I will slay any man who tries to stand in my way. Threatening to invade, always spreading and conquering, as all empires are wont to do. And the opposing side, fighting back against invasion and protecting their homes. Ugh, war and human nature. On the battlefield, Hala and her brother were of one mind. He leads the soldiers out and she is a battlefield nurse to those who are wounded. I soothe them with my poetry, my steady hand stitching, cleaning, rubbing, and working to protect and heal. Seeing these bodies, these countless souls lying in agony, it's it's almost too much. Kaula, your brother, he has been captured by the Romans. Captured? I feel my heart jolt and quiver in my chest. All air is knocked from my body. My brother, my mentor, my friend. In Roman hands? With them, he will be brutalized. We have seen what they do to their prisoners. Heads on spikes, chests ripped open. They're savages. My precious brother, my my blood begins to boil. There is no way they will take him from me and end his life. My brother will be free. I will taste Roman blood before I taste defeat. Because I am a woman, I cannot be seen as myself. I must disguise myself to get on the battlefield. I will wrap myself in black fabric 
tie down my breasts with green fabric, and cover my face with a veil. This way, I can fight while undetected. There, that should do it. That girl flew out of that camp and to her brother. Like an arrow, she pierced the enemy's line. They weren't expecting a fighter like her. Who's this mysterious black knight? He rides like an arrow with no fear for his life. He may be the greatest warrior I have ever seen. Little did they know. I slashed and slit and slayed them where they stood. These Romans took the wrong man. They will feel my wrath tonight. They did not see me coming, swift as the air before their last breath. Before long, I am covered in blood, dripping with the stuff. Other men begin to surround me. Fighters my brother led in battle. Brave Black Knight, I have never seen such courageous fighting against the Romans in my life. Who are you, warrior? They cannot see my womanhood. They will never allow me to do what I must do. Brave fighter, tell us who you are, so we may pay you the respect you were due. I revealed myself to them. A woman. A fighter. I am Haula Bintalaswar. I was here with the other women to help the wounded on the battlefield, but when I heard my brother was taken, I did what I had to do. We must help you find them. Haula, great fighter, lead the way. Brother, you are safe now. No one will harm you as long as life flows through my veins. And that girl did not leave the battlefield. There was too much work to be done. Too many sick and wounded. Until one day her horse was injured in battle. She fell from her horse and was captured by the Romans. They brought her to a tent where there were other captive women, all of them chained, frightened. They knew what came next. Stop your crying, horse. You are property now, and when we return from battle, we will all pass you around and use you for our pleasure. You whore will be my special piece of meat. You'll keep me nice and warm tonight. If you behave, I will make you my wife. I would rather die in agony than live in disgrace as your wife. I would rather burn in fire than let you lay one filthy finger upon me. I will have your head for this insult, and I will be free. But I cannot do this alone. We must all be free. Women, look at us. Look at what they've done to us. 
taken us from our people, put us in chains, mock us, and now they mean to violate our bodies. How much do you plan to take? How long will you live as a slave? And why? So that they will not hurt you? They will hurt you anyways. We cannot wait or play along or hope the pain will pass. We must take action. Now. They must pay for the harm they do. We must fight them to free ourselves. Sisters, fighters, will you join me? Oh yes, they wanted to fight. They wanted to hurt their captors. Make them pay for all the humiliation and violence. They were sick and tired of war, destruction, rape, and it waited for them all day and all night. They'd had enough of all the beating and the cooking and the cleaning, and they were even tired of bearing children for their captors. They wanted Roman blood, and they would have it. The poles that hold up this tent pull them out of the dirt. We will use these poles to put holes in the men who wish to do the same to us. Keep a tight circle. Listen to me clearly now. Do not let this circle break. If it breaks, we die. Keep the circle strong and stab with the poles. Ready? Horse, we are back from battle. It is time to pleasure us all, horse. Paula and the women killed over 30 Romans that day. The women got their freedom, and Chaula got the head of her captor. I bet he wasn't running his mouth much after that. In the Syrian village of Sermon, Isil tried to destroy the legacy of Chaula ben Thalaswar. But you can never capture the wild spirit of a strong woman. Listen, since the beginning, we've been the women out and always beating the system. They ain't want to give us rights, but we kept with division. Oh, no, where I go, where ammo gonna handle the business. Brave people, gals, guys, and everybody in between, how are you doing today? Have you checked in with your heart? What's making you bloom? Welcome to another episode of Vanguard of the Viragos, where we revisit the heroines of human history to learn from this hidden archive of treasures. I'm your hostess with the mostess, Chelsea D. I am currently in Washington, D.C., and I want to uplift that I am on the ancestral lands of the Nacotchtank, Anacostan, and Piscataway peoples. I want to uplift the hands who have loved, stewarded, grown food, given birth to, this land for longer than any of us can imagine. A quick accessibility check-in. I am doing well today, experimenting with Zencaster, uh, really loving the modern art making of podcasting. Very glad to be here. A little lower back pain, but um, making it through. 
So this is the portion of our show where after you have listened to hopefully a very entertaining collection of nine heroic tales from all over the ancient and historic world featuring femme leaders, uh, I am a creative who is addicted to diverse representation and storytelling for the stories we tell mold the people we become, I think. Uh, But my guests on this show who are featured during this portion are folks who are actively studying, preserving, and I would argue currently making history. These are the real heroes to me. And today's hero that we are featuring is Dr. Lindsay Mazurik. Thank you for joining me in this studio. Um, I'm so glad to have you here. How are you? Thank you so much for having me, Chelsea D. I'm doing all right. I mean, about as well as really can be expected given what's going on today. But um, I'm really excited to be here with you and to talk to you about um, the ancient world and ancient women. Oh, so excited. So excited. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I kind of want to preface this by saying I... I did not have any formal introduction to Dr. Mazurik besides Google. I you, I wanted to tell retell these stories, share these stories um, about these historic heroines. And then I wanted to talk to folks who I felt might know a little bit more, might be able to bring some context. You know, I, I'm an actor, but these people, you know, they're really studying this. And so um, I'm so glad that that you're here to, to bring context to this story, but also just the larger story of, of humanity and what we've done. And I don't know, maybe give some insight on where you think we're going based on where we've been. I mean, I know that's like total, you know, <laughs> dream dream place extrapolation i don't know i don't know but i'm curious to see you know what you think well i i thank you so much and i i appreciate the vote of confidence in my uh my future telling abilities um but i think it's it's also really exciting to have these moments where uh you know academia and and arts can can interact and talk to each other it's i mean the ancient greeks thought that one of the best ways to worship and to explore their worlds was through uh, drama and so i think it's always really great when we can have these moments where we we work together Ugh, making the connections making the connections uh all right so let's dig in let's dig in uh can you share a bit with us about your area of expertise you know where your passion and history lies what what era are you dealing with so my main uh, area of focus is the history and archaeology of the Roman Empire. I, I work particularly in the, the sort of the second and third century CE. And what drew me to this is that it's a really great laboratory to explore these big questions of things like uh, living in a colonial space, uh, reacting and sort of interacting with colonial power and um, sort of the, the ways in which those situations can produce um, cultural conflict, cultural change, cultural collisions, um, shifting identities and senses of self. Um, all of that was just really fascinating to me. And so the Roman Empire really is a wonderful place to explore all of that because we have a really rich array of material, culture. Um, I, my specialty is really sculpture, um, historical records, all that sort of stuff. It all comes together really beautifully in the Roman Empire. Um, I've specifically been working on the study of this really interesting cult. Uh, so Egyptian religion becomes extremely popular throughout the empire, beginning in the, uh, the first century BC. 
Uh, and then by the second century AD, it's everywhere. Everybody's worshiping Isis uh, and you know, Serapis and Osiris. And um, they become just this incredibly popular thing. And I really wanted to explore what happens to your sense of self as a, a Greek and Greeks are historically uh, what we would call culturally chauvinistic, to be very polite about it. Mm -hmm. They really think that they are the greatest and purest and most wonderful of cultures. Um, <laughs> and so I f I, my argument is that you know, picking up Egyptian religion has to shift your, your understanding of something like that. Um, and I think it does. And so I, I just finished a book on that, on that topic. Oh, fascinating. You know, when I was looking into these figures, I came across ISIS. And I was like, this, talk about a trove of just how deep you can go into the stories. I mean, the exploits and adventures and like, I'm so excited to just dig a little bit more into, because I, I know it's scratching the surface, you know, of, of, of her, of her or, and, and what she represented. I feel like I've been working on this topic for you know ten years at this point, and I still feel like there's so much more that I need to know about about ISIS. Ugh, I mean, what what drew you? What drew you to ISIS in particular? So, uh, I always was really. I think it comes out of this interest in sort of trying to understand the, these cultural dynamics. And I started out being really excited about looking at Rome and Egypt, um, and I got really excited about this group of mummies that got made in, in Rome and Egypt, where the, they had these beautifully like Greek style painted faces on boards, and then they would be tied into mummies. Mm -hmm. So you'd be looking at a, a mummy and like the top of it would be this Greek style porch. And they're really stunning. Like they go from like Rembrandt style to Cezanne style. <sighs> um, and they, they're really um, interesting in terms of, you know, what we, we, the study of things like skin color and representation and, and clothing and dress and jewelry. Cause there's obviously a ton of like cultural values attached to all of those things. Yeah. Um, and there's such a diversity of those. Um, I found them fascinating. Um, and then they get, it's, like it's fundamentally a very Greek thing to do, to paint yourself like that. And then to tie it onto a mummy, which is the Greeks found that very, they found mummies very creepy. They had a lot of feelings about mummies. Um, <laughs> and there's just tons of these things. There's literally like hundreds of them. Um, and then they have this amazing afterlife in, in you know, the hist in what European history, like Freud had one in his office. Really? Yeah, I mean, they did some creepy stuff, like they would just chop them in half or take the, the portrait off. And then um, mummies actually end up becoming medicine at some point where people would like, like make tea it? out of mummy. Yeah, I'm amazed that didn't kill people, but um, I'm not a doctor. So well, I'm not that kind of doctor. So there's a whole 19th century history of consuming mummies and unwrapping mummies. Um, and then, you know, kind of having parts of mummies as sort of this talisman of protection. Um, that's obviously also very embroiled in the history of 19th century imperialism over over Africa yeah. as well. Um, the resonance is there. When you when you mentioned when you first said the word colonialism, my mind went to you know the most I guess recent you know mm -hmm. um, historical point for me. So it's so, it's so fascinating to see like these Egyptian practices and 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 spiritual beliefs are constant consistently used, reused, revisited, you know, there's a, almost a kind of, I don't know. And what, what would you say? Like, is it like a costuming? Is it a, does your research find, you know, how, what is the reason do you think? 
I mean, I think that part of it is this desire to, I think humans very much want to know what it's like to be somebody really different from them. Mm-hmm. I think that there's, that's a very fundamental human trait. And I think that part of that is a desire to have power over others and consumption is, is a way to have that power. Mm-hmm. And so now I think a lot of these impulses come across through things like cultural appropriation. And so I think it's the same impulse, just taking a, a different form in different times in a different context. Wow. Um, and so these, you know, some of the what I'm looking at now with these with these religions, it really is a desire to consume Egypt, to control Egypt, to say that Greekness is the central and most important thing in the empire and everything else kind of has to go through it. Mm. And so it really is a desire to have and control that what has been considered traditionally the, this strange, far off, unattainable place. Yeah, what I find so beautiful about, you know, your area of focus and and. and what you're unearthing through your research is you're, you're following the line to, you know, where, where these, the culture that is being appropriated, that, you know, you're going to almost the source of that power, you know, almost, um, or, or maybe that is exactly what you're doing, which is so beautiful to track it to, you can't say that you are the center of everything. And as you consume these things, and yet, mysteriously there is no lineage of where these things came from you know where these um pieces pieces of culture symbols of culture originated i I find it really beautiful that you're finding that you're tracking that you know for people thank you it's a really interesting it's really interesting to watch sort of the intellectual gymnastics that happen around it too because they write these hymns about isis like living in Athens, but somehow she's also from Egypt. Because of course they can't, if you divorce her from Egypt, she doesn't have a meaning anymore. Exactly. Um, and so they come up with all of these crazy, bizarre, some of the ugliest sculpture in the Roman world is trying to cre- make Isis a Greek goddess. And it's just, it's amazing the sort of the backhand springs that they're doing to pull this off. I mean, it, it sounds familiar. <laughs> it sounds very contemporary. Uh, uh, so let's, let's talk a little bit about um, the virago that this episode focused on. Um, and I, I want to just talk a little bit about why I landed on the word virago, because mm-hmm. I, I'd heard it used. It's somebody, I have, it was some movie, and I think it was a period piece. Uh, and when I say that, I mean, it was some television or or film piece that took place in like 19th century Europe um and so it was a period drama and they were like this virago and they were talking about this woman who was some type of business leader or whatever and I was like hmm what an interesting word I looked it up and the first definition was like loud shrew woman um and then the second and third definitions were talking about the older more original um, like the etymology of the word and, and what it originally meant. And it was about valor and courage, like a very courageous and brave woman. And so I thought, hmm, that kind of transmutation of the meaning of the word from its origins into its contemporary use, I thought would be a great way to talk about these figures. And then to also think about how things change over time, but but do they? You know, how are they, how, how are they in, in relationship with each other? So were you aware of Haula Bintalaswar before 
this, you know, audio demo <laughs> that I sent you. <laughs> I have to admit that I was not, uh, but it was, it was great to hear about her and she sounds fascinating and I'm excited to learn more about her. Um, so thank you for introducing me to somebody who's, you know, clearly worth studying. Oh. <laughs> Uh, if you if there's anything in academic loves, it's another thing to study. We love we love finding new things to read about. Um, but I, I think you know we we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier. There's there's so much about her story that ties into histories of women in that region in antiquity, um, and so it's really fun for me to kind of see as somebody who works on much earlier periods um, to sort of put her in this larger trajectory of stories of women who are uh, able to claim power through sex and violence, mm -hmm. women who, you know, exist in these sort of uh, places where they invert gender norms, um, and even women who rebel against the Roman Empire. All of that's happening in this area, you know, hundreds, hundreds, if not thousands of years before Kala arrives. And it's so crazy that her story was actually one of the first that I found, and it her, it, it just blew my mind that there was a, that was there was someone who was captured, and uh, you know, traditionally, when you think about gender roles during times of war, if you are femme, if you're a woman, and you are captured, in my estimation or what I've come to understand is that you're just going to be a sex slave, like you're just going to be subjugated, and like that's pretty much it. And so reading her story and seeing that she organized this this group of women to like really push back in that intimacy of the moment of of when that sexual violence is supposed to occur it it blew my mind because I was like I'm a I'm a modern woman and that did not to me that was not an option to me it was not I could not even fathom that you could, that that's a possibility, you know? So her story really cracked open possibilities to me. Um, so, I mean, how did the story make you feel? How, how did, how did it feel listening to it? I think I had many of the same reactions. I mean, anytime you, you know, sex is a really vulnerable moment for women and, and for, for everyone really. Um, but particularly the type of sex where the, it really is a, a rape scenario where, and there's so much even layered on top of rape um, mm -hmm. that it, it is a moment where you, you, there's a lot of fear and people who are able to, to sort of rise above that fear and take that moment to, um, for themselves and, and for their own liberation. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's powerful. It's inspiring. Yeah. Um, and it's, it is something that we all, you know, hope that we could do were we in that same situation. Um, and so that is something that's that's really incredible to to hear about mm -hmm. and to see. And especially given the fact that actually there are a lot of women in, in the contemporary world who do go through these experiences still. And that's probably, I think, what what I think of when, in these moments um, and who do have to experience this. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it, I think for me, it also reminds me that that is still a major problem that exists in the world that we have to pay attention to. Yeah. Um, does storytelling play a role in, in, in your research and in your work or in the, in the process of your work anywhere? I think that um, anytime you make history, you have to recognize, and I, I say make history in terms of like the actual creation of historical writing, you're making mm -hmm. a narrative. And if your narrative is not coherent, if it's not compelling, then you're, you're not really doing the work. And so mm. 
Um, my, I, I'm currently in a classics department, but my last position was in a history department. And one of the things I really took away from being in that community of intellectuals was the importance of narrative and the import and the responsibility that we have as scholars to create narratives that are true, but also narratives that can communicate not only to the five other people who care about my topic, but to to a broader audience, to being able to tell people this is why what I study matters. This is why, you know, we need to know more about ISIS so that we can, you know, have more insight into these dynamics that we experience. And mm-hmm. um, this is something that is very much a, a debate in, in the field that I work in, um, in sort of ancient Greek and, and Roman history. You can't just see antiquity or the past as something that's divorced from the present because when you go back and actually read, you know, when I read 19th and early 20th century accounts of Roman history, what jumps out to me is actually not even the Roman parts. It's the parts that are responding to the moments that those people are writing in, even if I don't think they necessarily were aware of it. So, for example, the other day on Twitter, because there's there's a very active classics Twitter, um, I, one of my <laughs> colleagues at, at the University of Winnipeg was was posting these these really gross passages from uh, this guy, uh, Francis Howerfield's Romanization of Britain. And they're, they're, you know, they're gross racially, they're gross about, you know, indigenous people. It's just a, it's a, it's a nasty work. But what that book is really about, it's, it's not about Rome, frankly. It's not about Roman Britain. That book is about the collapse of the British Empire at the beginning of the 20th century. And this guy's writing his history to try and say, no, we have a, a real responsibility air quotes, a real, you know, need to rule other people because they're not as good as us. And mm. so the, the the way he's framing his narrative is really about his moment. And I can point to, you know, tons and tons of other people. And so when we write these things, we try to think that they're not responding to our moments because that's ostensibly what we don't think we're supposed to be doing. But really, mm. I mean, I'm writing about things that matter to me now. I'm writing about um, experiences that I'm having as I navigate, you know, 21st century United States, and also from my childhood back in, you know, Southern California, where these these sort of issues of immigration and cultural contact were things that that we all had to navigate as we tried to live together in one place. And so, um, you know, I think that we have a responsibility to recognize, you know, why am I, you know, not only to write a good narrative, but recognize why we're writing the narrative that we're writing, and to acknowledge that the narratives that we're writing, you know, intersect with the world that we live in. Um, it's it's such a human activity to try to find your place in the world, to give meaning to your existence, um, and to see this replayed over and over again. And, and I can't help but think about this current, you know, historical moment where, you know, in in Washington D.C. there was this riot at the Capitol, and one of the most fascinating things to me was the material culture. Of, of the riot like why are people wearing animal skins and horns and you know learning that vikings didn't wear horns and like so where this cultural production of the imagination which filters into the fashion the props the you know uh LARPing is a word that has been thrown around a lot to describe how people are kind of picking and choosing elements of 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 other cultures in order to remake themselves or or give context to themselves, you know. 
oh my gosh, there's so so many of my my favorite colleagues are writing about the, the symbols. Um, and so like my my colleague Curtis Dozier up at Vassar, who incidentally taught me ancient Greek when I was 19. Um, he's a oh, lovely yeah. he's a lovely person. He's been uh, running a website where he documents all of these you know sort of alt right white nationalist appropriations of these types of symbols. Um, oh, wow. It's got a whole library of them. Um, and he's working on a book wow. about that. Uh, yeah, it's it's very upsetting, but very good. Very good. And then, yes, <laughs> very good. Very good because we got to, and we, t- we talked a little bit about this uh, before we started recording, but, you know, my current obsession with archiving and, you know, we've got to capture these things. Like I was reading about people who were downloading all of the, you know, conversations and chats from different, you know, extremist um, apps and websites before they were taken down. And I thought, oh, wow, people, there are other people who feel the urgency to like preserve this, mm-hmm. you know, or else, I don't know, different interpretations will become yeah. what is kind of um, taken in without a really critical analysis, you know. So what have you learned about human connectivity and social networking through studying the Roman Empire and your digital archaeology project? So I've been working with some with uh, several colleagues at a bunch of different um, universities across the U.S. and Canada to try and um, look at the ways in which people define their own connections uh, through this practice that Roman, um, Greeks and Romans both did this, but the Romans were really into it. Um, so they were really into dedicating, in, uh, in, we call them inscriptions. So basically, um, anytime you made a law, when you died, if you dedicated the statue, um, sometimes just because you'd put up a, a plaque that had, you know, your name, and then it would sort of give us some social information. Often you get like, you know, son or daughter of, um, I don't know, Publius is a really common Roman name. Um, or the, you know, the guy who's in charge of this guild or the guy who holds this office or who's this kind of priest. Um, and so we're trying to take these texts and, and use some digital approaches to sort of explore the ways in which people situate themselves in their own networks. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been working particularly at Ostia, which is Rome's main port city in the second century AD. Um, and I think one of the things that we've we've noticed more or less is that people do create these very small groups that are very important to their identity in ways that are quite similar in many ways, you know, by by religion, by profession, by family. Um, but just how durable these networks really are, that the ways in which we we put ourselves in these networks and we think about these networks and we um, you know identify with these networks it really does pass down through generations and through long spans of time. And so it, I think one of, the, one of the things it does really show in particular is, um, you know, humans really want to identify with others. They don't want to be individuals um, mm. and they don't want to be separated from um, the parts of their life that they think matter. Um, and so it's it seems a bit trite, but I think for me, that's been really profound um, to mm-hmm. see just how much people really um, will hold on to these things for for generations. Yeah, and the need to connect is so prevalent even now. You know, with with COVID, with with how we are being forced to isolate our reliance on social media networks and these different apps and platforms, and all of these things have really come to the fore as ways for connectivity and as a 
as a theater artist, it was particularly terrifying at the onset of of the pandemic because I realized the magnitude of implications that would have for all of my work. Like all of my work is based around getting people closer, bringing them closer to within further than six feet, you know, and speaking very loudly all around them. Um, you know, but at the same time, this very ancient primordial need to be together and tell stories and laugh and and it's interesting too because one thing about that we've also discovered really is that there are places where people you know people will congregate in different parts of their city right they'll they'll go to the the market square they'll go to the temple they'll go to um you know the bars um romans Mm -hmm. loved bars and (laughs) they're very into bars and uh you know it, it and that's where all these inscriptions are they don't put them just randomly. Like they know where the people are going to mass. And so there is a sense too that we need to share space in order to have this connection, in order to even be able to communicate this connection. Like we all have to be together. And there's a sense that, you know, this separation is disorienting because it's taking away our identity. It's taking away our ability to tell people who we are. Mm, right. Which, oh, that makes even more sense of why we're seeing the level of, you know, um, protest from all corners of, of the political spectrum in the U.S. right now, you know, uh, having journeyed into a, a, a crowd at a protest once and seeing how many different people were there, I mean, dare I say, factions of, of, of folk and realizing that this is also a social gathering like yes there's a political and and a very urgent social uh, thing we need to reckon with but this is also a gathering for people to come together and and dance and play music and sing sing their songs and wear their symbols and this is all getting that little bit of social that we don't you know we're not supposed to be having right Right. now so like a favorite story of ISIS or like a favorite instance or something in her history or in her narrative that like is something that you maybe think about often or is very inspirational to you? I think, so the fu- the fundamental story about ISIS is to me still, I think the most emotionally compelling. Um, so ISIS is married to Osiris, who's also her brother. Apparently this is fine in the ancient world. This happens all the time. Um, and so they, uh, they have a, another brother named Seth who's a crocodile and he's sort of this evil god and he and Osiris get into a fight because Osiris is sort of this god of light and Seth is this god of darkness and Seth kills Osiris and he chops up his body into a bunch of parts and scatters them across I mean depending on who's telling the story Egypt or the world um, and so Isis is devastated and she goes on a quest to find all of these different parts of Osiris's body and she has to travel all through Egypt, um, you know, at least up through like Lebanon um, and bring them all back together. And she she then she uses magic to sew them back together to create you know, Osiris is the first mummy. So he is his body parts are brought back together. Um, and this part's a little weird. She she also creates a, a magic penis for him and um, they have sex. And that's how she actually has her child, um, Harpocrates, who then goes goes back and fights Seth and wins. But that that process of going around the world as a mourner and collecting all these body parts 
and bringing them back together is really, I think that's really emotionally quite resonant. Um, this sense mm. of, of mourning and of being sort of an itinerant nomad and having no home as you accomplish this task. Um, that, that to me, so the life of an academic, I'm sure the life of a, of a theater artist is not terribly different. It's very itinerant. You move all the time. Um, it's very difficult to build community because you're constantly like moving for work. Um, and it's very sad and it's very hard. And that's been something that, that has been one of the, the more difficult challenges of my life has been this itinerancy. And so that part I really resonates with me. Um, and it's interesting too, because that also was clearly the part that resonated with people in antiquity as well, because one of the two main festivals they had, people would reenact this. They would crawl around in the dark looking for the parts of Osiris's body within the temple and then bring them back together and celebrate his resurrection. That is truly just profound. Yeah, because I definitely can relate to this transient, moving, and and in a way, she's archiving. She is preserving, you know, mm -hmm. she is making history in that way, um, which is what is so, it just feels like so part of the journey of life. And, and right now, I feel it more resonantly of like, oh, I mm -hmm. want to bring people together. I want to take these different parts. We think there's, you know, scholarship and then there's there's theater and then there's this this digital thing over here and then there's this thing that's happening right now. Um, but they're all part of the same body, you know? So, yeah, man, I really feel that. The, the other thing that, that also inspired me about that story too is um, – you know, in, in particularly Greek versions, they move that narrative out of Egypt to the entire like world. Wow. So Isis goes literally all over the world to bring her, bring him back together. Yeah. And then she acquires all these names and she, this sort of creates this like universal global goddess that like unifies all of wow. us. Wow. Um, so that part gets beautiful. That's one of the nice parts of the appropriation. Uh, wow. And this like, when I think about like femme leadership and the, I was actually reading a Toni Morrison essay earlier today and she was talking about um yes go into the world with ambition but also understanding that you're nurturing sensibilities and she was specifically speaking about feminine leadership she was the name of the essay or the speech is called um Cinderella's stepsisters and she's talking about you know the the types of violence that women do to one another and how to not do that and why why you should not do that um, and I've been thinking a lot in, about the role of nurturer and caregiver in social change and what mm -hmm. what does that look like? And I don't know. I think I have some personal like, oh, you know, I don't want to be, you know, why do we always have to, if you're a femme, you have to be taking care of somebody and nurturing them. And oh, I don't want to. But then to hear this story of ISIS and it being like such a fundamental part of leadership, such a fundamental part of bringing continents worlds together is that love is that um community nurturing community nurturing bonds so that's so that's beautiful dang beautiful it's <laughs> really beautiful <laughs> it's so important thank you um okay so i think you know i think we're kind of rounding it out is there a virago beside um Isis, who you would want to hang out with from from history, who you just want to like kick it with, 
grab grab Gosh. grab a cup of tea or I don't know something stronger with <laughs> I feel like there are so many and that I think is a is a testament to the amount of work that women have had to do in in history um to 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 be yeah. to merely be um and I'm, I'm already going to have you know coffee with with one famous fabulous viraga right now so that's great um yes, you're amazing <laughs> you know it's interesting because i so i live in indiana now and i live just about an hour and a half from um Terre Haute, which is the federal prison that does um federal executions oh, oh, oh right i am uh, this is not a thing I knew until I moved here. Um, I assume they happened in Texas or something, mm-hmm. but they happened in Indiana. And um, so one of the people I've been most inspired by lately has actually been Sister Helen Prejean, who's uh, been you know, really devoted her entire life to, to battling the death penalty um, across the country and to really pushing for um, not all, you know, bigger scale change in terms of, you know, banning the death penalty, but also every single time that somebody comes up for the death penalty, she's there. She uh-huh. pushes. She pushes hard um, and she's really you know, thrown her whole life behind that. And so I think that's really an incredible thing to do. And I think she's an incredible person and I'd like to hang out with her sometime, you know, but I think she's real busy. Unfortunately, I know she's got a lot of work to do and she's up against a big, a big thing. So yeah, more power to her. And there's something about this, like earnest, I'm just going to step by step chip away at this thing i'm just gonna yeah. i'm gonna stand here and hold witness and be be a stone in the river you know what i mean and this this is this is what i'm gonna do and i i would love to ask her like what sustains you you know what what yeah. is the what is the thing inside you that says stay you know and 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 right. bear witness to this and speak you know thank you that's dope I'm going to look more into it, more into her because because there's also so much happening right now. There's so many fronts of urgency right now in the world. It's, it's been really incredible to see different, different um, femme leaders step up. You know what I mean? In in the face of pandemic protest, the whole nine. So uh, tally forth Vanguard. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So I'd like to um, thank you, Dr. Mazurik for joining generously joining me um, in conversation today, going from just emails to here we are on these these two platforms. We're simultaneously on two things, working together to be a part of creating this narrative of the future. And so I, I, I am so grateful for, for your presence here this, this, this morning. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. This is such a great project. I'm, I'm really honored that you that you asked to speak to me. <laughs> uh, thank you to everyone for listening to another episode of Vanguard of the Viragos with Chelsea D. This conversation and more resources will be on the audio podcast and website. This is a whole world, y'all. So visit us and check it out. And always remember, we are all on the vanguard of a changing time. Be the difference. Lead with love. Forever undefeated, we the secret of creation. Women are the next generation manifested. Underground railroad exit in the matrix. Follow me and I can introduce you to your greatness.